Hi everyone, welcome back to Jew Oughta Know. I had a little break there closing out 2019, but I am back with a slew of new episodes. Still on season four, the history of Israel from 1948 to 1967, the first 19 years of the state. Now there's a popular idea that seems to make sense on the surface and I hear it all the time. Israel was created because of the Holocaust. It was thanks to the world's sympathy that after World War II, they voted to give the Jews their own state in Palestine. Had it not been for Hitler, Israel never would have come into being. Now, if you share this thought with an Israeli, they will correct you. The Zionist movement came about decades before the Holocaust, they'll say, as well as the British mandate that we delved into at length in season two. So it's actually the inverse. Israel didn't happen because of the Holocaust, but the Holocaust did happen because there was no Israel. There was no state that the Jews could go to, no army that could protect them, but now there is, and that is the reason for the state of Israel. And so, on the one hand, you had this Jewish state founded on the lessons of the Holocaust and centuries of Jewish persecution, deeply moral and historic principles, principles which were iterated in its Declaration of Independence, from their own struggles, the Jews who founded the state promised to treat Israel's citizens and neighbors with the equality, dignity, and respect that the Jews had lacked in many corners of the world. But at the same time, Israel had to fight a war of existence against an enemy determined to kill every last Jew. This war created many of Israel's heroes and narratives and national values, but the war also forced Israel to compromise on some of the principles laid out in the Declaration, Promises of freedom and equality that took decades after to materialize, if they ever did. By March of 1949, Israel's War of Independence, which began almost 10 months earlier, had finally wound down. Israel emerged as a nation that had fended off a war of annihilation, increased its territory, and proved to the world that the Jewish people could fight. But the price was steep. 6,300 Israeli soldiers and civilians lost their lives, just about 1% of the entire population at the time, a staggeringly high number. The war had huge implications for the geopolitics of the Middle East, but also on this new Israeli society that was bringing together Jews from all over the world, as well as those Arabs who stayed within Israel's borders. So heroes and territory and narratives and compromised values, that's what we're talking about today. I'm your host, Jason Harris. Welcome back again to Jew Oughta Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Out of the horrors of the Holocaust came to Israel hundreds of thousands of Jews, often young, often alone. Israel promised a new beginning and a life renewed, a new era for the individual Jew and the collective Jewish people. In his book, My Promised Land, the writer Ari Shavit quotes the famous Israeli political science professor Zev Sternhill. And now these very same Jews who had been locked up in the ghetto and were hunted down rose and established a state, he said. Describing his own experience, Professor Sternhell said, I had arrived. This was the last station. No more wandering, no more transformations, no more false identities. This was the promise of Zionism, the idea fulfilled that a Jew could live in a new and permanent state of being as free, proud, and strong in the ancient homeland. 
And yet the project remained precarious, for Israel was still at war. Many Holocaust survivors found themselves in the front lines of battle, fighting for the state in which they had pinned all of their hopes. Inevitably, some of them made the ultimate sacrifice, so that this hope would be realized for others. It happened sometimes that when their bodies were pulled off the battlefield, a startling and tragic realization was made. There was no family to attend their burial. The parents, siblings, any close relatives, all had been murdered in the Holocaust. The survivor became known as a Netzer Acharon, literally the last small branch, the last of kin, the only surviving member of his family, which now, with his death, disappeared forever. Of the Israeli soldiers killed in the war, one-third were Holocaust survivors. Of them, 148 soldiers were recognized as last of kin. Still others last of kin died in later wars. They left an enduring legacy. Amongst those who gave the ultimate sacrifice, the Netzer Acharon, the last small branch, would seem to have sacrificed to an extra degree. And yet in Israel's complicated relationship with Holocaust survivors, which I'll talk about more down the road, there was criticism in some circles. A myth arose that these last of kin were inexperienced and weak, had been thrust into battle immediately after stepping off the boat, and therefore didn't contribute as much as, say, an elite operative with Paul Mach, who had been fighting for years. It was just that, a myth, but it spoke to Israel's unease from the beginning, with the hundreds of thousands of Holocaust survivors who made up its population. They were seen as victims, in a country that very quickly developed a culture of warrior pride. Still, it demonstrates that each and every death in Israel was heavily weighted. This is one of the key lessons from the War of Independence. Each soldier who fell was seen by the nation as representing something, as having his and her own history and purpose, as having been forced to give up their life before getting to see the fruits of their sacrifice, which is just tragic beyond words. Each life was precious and valued, even those who no longer had any family to treasure them. In their death, the nation became their family and treated them as such. It's why Israel has never built a tomb of the unknown soldier. It does have a memorial to 179 soldiers still considered missing in action, mostly from the War of Independence. But under both Jewish law and Israeli military policy, no soldier can ever be left behind or given up for lost. The imperative remains even to this day to continue searching for as long as it takes. Security, then, is not just about the protection of life, but also about national dignity and the honoring of the individual who sacrificed for the state. It's the social compact between the nation and the soldier. We will aggressively manage our collective defense, says the nation to the soldier. We will do everything we can to prevent you from going to war. But if the time comes, the expectation is that you may have to sacrifice yourself for the collective. It sets up this mythic narrative around the Israeli soldier, this valiant ideal that Israel found in the daring feats of those who survived and the noble sacrifice of those who did not. These were Israel's heroes, forged in the fire of the first war to secure its basic existence. But there's another side to this emphasis on security in the context of national dignity. Israel has wrestled with it from the beginning. It may well be that Israel's aggressive execution of self-defense is and was necessary. 
After all, they faced a determined enemy bent on their destruction. But it's also true that the obsession with security clashed with other values that Israel was committed to pursuing. On May 14, 1948, the Declaration of Independence promised that the state of Israel would ensure complete equality of social and political rights to all of its inhabitants. It called on Israel's Arab inhabitants specifically to participate in the upbuilding of the state on the basis of full and equal citizenship and due representation. Five days later, the brand new Israeli government imposed martial law on its Arab residents. By a few months later, nearly every Arab town and village in Israel was put under the political and administrative control of a military governor. Instead of dealing directly with the state institutions then, the Arabs, even those who were citizens of Israel, were forced to go through and seek the permission of a military administration for even basic services. Most significantly, martial law empowered the Israeli military governor with absolute control over movement in, out of, and around these Arab villages. If an Arab resident wanted to leave town to go to work, get medical treatment, visit relatives, whatever, they had to obtain a formal pass from the military, which could, of course, deny or revoke that permit any time. The military administration had broad powers over the lives of the Arab inhabitants. They could arrest anyone at any time for any reason or no reason at all and detain them indefinitely. They could deport anyone from the town. Nearly anything was permissible under the claim of security considerations. The Knesset passed dozens of regulations upholding martial law on Israeli Arabs, most of whom, remember, were Israeli citizens. What's really ironic here is that the Knesset got its martial law from the same emergency regulations that Britain had used to control the Jewish population when Palestine was a British colony. Regulations which the Israeli historian Tom Segev notes that the Jews protested vigorously. Just a few years earlier, the Jews had declared that such laws subverted law and justice, constituted a grave danger to personal freedom, and imposed arbitrary rule free of all legal supervision. And now, here was Israel, they said, doing the same thing. So it wasn't without opposition. One of the loudest voices was the leader of the right-wing opposition in the Knesset, Menachem Begin. We, he said, we, the men of the Irgun, declare that these Nazi laws will neither be passed nor recognized. We shall violate these statutes day and night. Now, part of his opposition is that he worried the emergency regulations would also be used against the right wing, that the left would come after him just like the British had. But he was also opposed because martial law was incompatible with his view of Zionism. Zionism, he believed, was above all a justice movement, and as such, all of the Jewish state's citizens must have their civil rights. Everyone in Israel requires basic human rights and dignity in order to feel like they have a stake in society. Just because the Jews were a majority didn't mean that the Arabs should be relegated to second-class citizenship, he insisted. Indeed, in order for the Jewish state to live up to the principles of both Zionism and democracy, the protection of minorities is essential. And this, he said, from Jews who know more than anyone else what it's like to live as a barely tolerated minority. Now this viewpoint might seem surprising. After all, Menachem Begin is best known for his aggressive, militant defense of Jewish life and rights against any and all enemies. But it's probably lost on most Israelis today that the right wing in Israel was once the chief proponent of democratic freedom and equality for the Arabs, oftentimes even more so than the left. 
And in huge contrast to recent political campaigns in Israel, which has seen the right-wing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu demonize Arab Israelis as disloyal and a threat. What I'm telling you is that when it comes to Israel, we often have to drop our preconceived notions of what it means to be left and right. Because many times the left and the right act in ways opposite of what we would assume. As we'll see down the road, it was just as much the right as the left that made difficult decisions to pursue peace with the Arabs, because leaders acted with both pragmatism and principle, irrespective of ideology. It's one of the most interesting and I think the most heartening contradictions of Israeli history and what gives me hope for the future. But anyway, I digress. Despite Menachem Begin's opposition, the emergency regulations were passed by the Knesset. Surely there were reasons. Let's take a look. The question is why the government imposed martial law. There's no doubt that security was a major concern. Remember that when the UN voted on partition, Israel expected a Jewish and Arab state to be established next to one another, integrated economically and enjoying close and peaceful relations. Jews on their side, Arabs on their side, and everyone getting along, happy to be amongst their respective group. But that hadn't happened, and Israel ended up with a lot more Arabs in the country than they had anticipated. And this in the midst of a war for existence, surrounded by hostile people on all sides. So there was a real fear that the Arab minority in Israel would help the invading Arab armies. Even Menachem Begin acknowledged that during the war there was some justification for stricter control over the Arab population. Not only given their perceived or possible hostility to the state, acting as a kind of Trojan horse inside Israel, but also their close links to those Arabs who had left Israel during the war, the government was worried that Israeli Arabs would assist refugees in sneaking back across the border, diluting Jewish control along the frontiers. And that did happen. And there was an ongoing campaign of guerrilla warfare and terrorism directed against Israel even long after the war. But it wasn't really coming from the assistance of Arabs inside Israel. Usually the refugees sneaking back in weren't looking to attack. Mostly they were looking just to go back home. Like everything else associated with absolute power over a weaker population, martial law was imposed arbitrarily. When it was guided by venal officials, it was capricious and corrupt. In other places, Israeli government officials opposed the more stricter provisions and chose not to follow them. In an administrative sense, the degree to which the emergency regulations were applied to the Arabs varied greatly over time and place. But the one set of regulations which were universal were the ones over the control of movement. The Israeli military administration kept a tight lid on who was allowed to move where and when, and who wasn't. So on the one hand, such restrictions served a security function, especially along the frontier where Israel was worried about infiltration. But martial law also helped Israel consolidate territory. Since the government had the power to remove people at will and to control movement, the army could use the emergency rules to push people out of a village along the frontier and take it over all in the name of military necessity. And this happened too. So there's a lot we can say about the nature and the impact of these emergency regulations, but perhaps the biggest impact of martial law was that it served to separate Jews and Arabs from one another. 
Jews in Israel could access the government and its services directly. Arabs could not. They had to go through the military administration to get there. Therefore, says Tom Segev, the historian, Jews and Arabs did not mix, and most Arabs did not really assimilate into Israeli society. Kept apart in their own villages and their own neighborhoods in the big cities, they were from the beginning of the state a people apart from the Jews. Not because Jews and Arabs hated each other, or because of their religious and cultural differences, but because Israeli government policy forced the separation. The inability of the Arabs to properly assimilate and lead normal lives as citizens left them with a lasting feeling of disconnection from the state and its achievements. They didn't feel like they had a stake in society as equal citizens to the Jews. Still, from the beginning, Arabs participated in the nation's political process. Israel's first Knesset in 1949 had three Arab members. Three out of 120 isn't much, but I bet you that's three more than you would have guessed the Arabs had. They were aligned with the left-wing Mapai party, Ben-Gurion's party, the party that controlled the government that imposed martial law on the Arabs. It was a bizarre sort of dependence, since the Arabs needed the left and its government to access civic life and services. But since he wanted to show Arabs and Jews living peacefully together, Ben-Gurion included this small Arab party in his coalition. By the early 1950s, other Israeli Arabs joined the Knesset. Emil Habibi was an Arab Christian from Haifa who served in the Knesset throughout the 1950s and 60s. First elected to the second Knesset in 1951, he was one of the founders of the Israeli Communist Party, which was blacklisted by Ben-Gurion. He refused to work with the Communists or Menachem Begin's right-wing party. Despite the ambivalent political status of the Israeli Arab community, Habibi continued to represent the community in the Israeli government. In the 1970s, he turned to writing, crafting characters and stories that reflected the hardships of Arab life in Israel and spoke to a particular Palestinian identity. Religion made no difference, he said, for whether an Arab was Christian or Muslim, they were still a Palestinian. Central to his identity was that he, as an Arab, hadn't fled Haifa during the war, but rather stayed and became an Israeli citizen, a fact that he insisted be inscribed on his tombstone. For his literary accomplishments, he was awarded the Israel Prize in 1992, it's like the Nobel Prize for Israel, and he accepted it with the idea being that it served to recognize Palestinian national culture in Israel and would help Arabs achieve equal rights and further cement their place in the state. And to some extent, we can say that Arab Israelis did rather well as Israeli citizens. They certainly enjoyed a higher standard of living than did people almost anywhere else in the Middle East. They had greater political rights, freedom of worship, economic prosperity, and a relatively open society, all things largely absent from the Arab states. And yet it's probably not enough to just point out what the Arabs would have lacked in those other countries, as if that justifies some of the disadvantages Arabs had in Israel. Although the emergency regulations passed by the government weren't nearly as oppressive as in other Arab states, they still served to marginalize non-Jews from the rest of Jewish society. And although the regulations were followed less and less in either law or spirit as the 1950s went on, it wasn't until 1966 that martial law was officially abandoned by the government. So what's my point here? Well, Israel is full of contradictions, and one of those is in regards to the narrative. There is a narrative of Israel's war of independence of remarkable perseverance in the face of annihilation. 
in which heroes of extraordinary courage and daring sacrificed their lives for the sake of a country that would save and renew the lives of their fellow Jews, of a small Jewish country that defied the tides of history to emerge victorious against all odds. And there is nothing wrong with that narrative. It's a true narrative, for those things really did happen. And there is every reason for Jews around the world to take pride in what had been achieved. It is yet still important to acknowledge that it wasn't the narrative for some of Israel's citizens. For them, most especially the Israeli Arabs, the war may have brought benefits, but it also tore apart their communities, and in some cases their own families. Out of fear, military strategy, and the desire for more territory, the government imposed restrictive laws on its Arab citizens, laws that persisted for another 17 years after the war had ended. Whatever promises of civil rights Israel made to non-Jews, most Arabs were still aware that the state was not created for them. Their narrative is no less true than the Jewish one, for it kept them feeling divided from Israeli society in ways that have persisted to this day. I don't think it takes away from either narrative to acknowledge the other, even if I myself feel a stronger attachment to the Jewish perspective. But how can we possibly understand the relationship between Jew and non-Jew in Israel today if we can't hold both of those narratives simultaneously and in contradiction and to know from where they came? In the meantime, Israel had secured its existence. The Arabs had fought a war to exterminate the Jewish state, which they considered a matter of honor, and lost. Israel had fought a war for its survival, and won. But as I've noted, the price was steep, with roughly 1% of the population killed. New cemeteries were created, new memorials built, new heroes honored. But with the war over and the state still standing, there was still one funeral left to conduct. Back in July of 1948, when the first truce ended, a small group of young Israeli soldiers set out to capture a strategic hill west of Jerusalem. Although they took casualties, they captured and held the high ground through the end of the war. Up on top was a commanding view of the city. In August of 1949, Israel brought to his final rest up there the man who in many ways had started it all. Although he died back in 1904, Theodore Herzl, the founder of the Zionist movement, held to his vision of the future. In his will, he asked to be buried next to his father in the Jewish cemetery in Vienna, but with a stipulation, to remain there until the Jewish people will transfer my remains to Eretz Yisrael. On August 17, 1949, it was finally possible. The funeral on top of the mountain brought out 200,000 people, basically a quarter of Israel's population at the time, which is just crazy. Dirt was placed around his casket from Jewish settlements all over the country, a testament to his famous saying, Im tirtsu enzo agada, if you will it, it is no dream. Israel named the spot Har Herzl, or Mount Herzl, and it became the site of Israel's national military cemetery, where ordinary soldiers and the highest officials were buried. Where the western walls amongst the holiest sites in Judaism, this was an effort to create sacred ground for the state, a place where Zionism and its visionaries and martyrs could be honored. Over the next couple of decades, Israel would gather the remains of Jews buried all over the place to bring them to Mount Herzl in Jerusalem. From Hannah Shenish in Budapest to Vladimir Jabotinsky from Long Island, it's one of the most fascinating places in Israel and a testament to a crucial ethos of the country. 
In the section of the cemetery devoted to fallen soldiers, the graves are nearly all identical, and the lowest-ranking soldiers can be found next to the highest-ranking generals, a testament to both the preciousness of individual lives and the collective sacrifice that built the nation. Soldiers and national leaders continue to be buried there today, and in a quiet corner you can find a monument to the Netzer Acharon, the last of kin, who sacrificed everything they had for a future they never got to see. Israel learned a great deal from that first year of warfare, namely that its security was paramount. When every fight was a fight for existence, in which to lose meant to die, Israel developed an understandable obsession with security. A key metric to that security was maintaining a Jewish majority in the land under Israeli control. For without it, the Jews could not determine their own fate, and would be at the mercy of an Arab population determined to snuff them out. But although the War of Independence produced winners, Israel in surviving and Jordan in securing more territory, the war of course also had losers. The Arab states were utterly humiliated, unable to destroy the hated Jews and instead having lost territory to them. But the biggest losers were those for whom the War of Independence had a different name. The Nakba, they called it, Arabic for catastrophe. These were the Palestinian refugees, probably the single most controversial issue in the Arab-Israeli conflict today. So who were they, what happened and why, and how much was directly Israel's fault? We'll get into all that next time. Today's music was Yosef Hadar, Camilla Jubran, and Chaim Guri and Sasha Argov. Check it out on my website, jewadonno.com. Thanks for listening. Lahitraot. See you later. Oh